It's not the heart of the father. That's not the heart of the shepherd of a hundred sheep. And that's not the heart of the woman with ten coins. It's not the heart. You, right where you're at, right in this moment, right in this space, you belong at the party. And the father's so glad you're here. to go today. You ready to go? We're going to look at one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and we are in our series. I get paid to speak for a living. Our series called Foundations, and this is a series on vision and who we are as a church. Our vision statement is we want to be a Christ-centered community of world-changing disciples, and last week we talked about one of our four pillars that if we're going to do that, we have to be spiritually disciplined in our living. Secondly, the today, we wanna, we've got to move the broken places of our lives towards wholeness. And, and this, this is important because so many of us say yes to Jesus for salvation, but don't really consider the journey of actually becoming whole in Christ. And uh, I, I've said this a million times, but I'll say it again. Um, Jesus not only came died to save you but he also died to heal you and set you free and so we want to experience all of that and so how do we get there well, today uh, I want to talk about that okay we're going to look at Luke 15 and um, the this is a pretty famous you'll, you'll catch it right away um, pretty famous passage, but I want to pull it apart. What we're going to do is kind of work through the passage with some passing commentary as we go, and then uh, I want to tell a story at the end, and then we'll get our implications, and then we'll do communion and be done before noon. I don't know. What time did the Broncos play today? Does, does it matter? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. You can be mad at me. I don't care. I haven't taken the mark. All right. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners, this is where you all gasp. It's shocking. We're all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. No way. How could he? Now, let's stop right there and talk a little bit about what's going on here. And then um, why is this such a big deal? And that, that foundation will drive kind of where Jesus goes next. Now, what's happening in this space is that Jesus is having meals with tax collectors and sinners. It, no way. <laughs> what is such a big deal here? Well, in an ancient Near Eastern culture, everything is built on honor and shame. And so if you do anything that would cause uncleanliness to your family, this is shameful. To touch someone who is a known sinner or to be and touch anything that they've touched makes you unclean. So to eat with someone who is a tax collector who works for the Gentiles or a sinner who, who, knows, who knows what they're capable of, sinning, it brings shame on your family. And so you would, by the way, in, it's still to this day in, in the Middle East, you would never eat with somebody that you don't have peace with. You, sharing a meal with them isn't like just showing up because they have such a strong push towards hospitality in their culture if you're not somebody that I feel like I can be hospitable to I can't eat with you and so this is a big deal that Jesus is doing this because what he's doing is he's making peace with tax collectors and sinners Jesus is making peace with those people 
He's not waiting for them to stop tax collecting and sinning. He's going to them and making peace with tax collectors and sinners. But by the way, uh, what he's doing, this meal, you don't just walk into a meal with somebody that you, have, you need to make peace with. There's a certain kind of meal that you do. Uh, say sulha. It means peace meal. I have a, a, a teacher who read a, told me about this newspaper article that he read back in the early 80s. And uh, the story was actually a really good example of what sulha is. Um, there was this young Israeli guy driving in the streets in Jerusalem. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know uh, that's no small feat. Um, the roads are confusing. It's, it's tangled. And, and also, the, um, the, the districts of what's Israeli controlled and what's Palestinian controlled is really confusing. Like, it's not like a, this street is demarcates, this side is one, this side is the other. It's, it's like there's, there's a big, weird, wound area, and right in the middle of it is different, and then there's a like, a, like you have this Israeli-controlled area with a freckle of Palestinian-controlled area in it. It's confusing, and so it's really hard to know. So he was driving home late one night, and it's raining really hard, and he gets turned around, and he realizes that he's not in the right part of Jerusalem. He's in a Palestinian-controlled area of Jerusalem, and this is really dangerous for him. So what he does is he whips his car around, hits the gas to get out of there, and in the process runs over a young Palestinian kid. And he's like, oh, no. So all these Palestinians start coming out of their houses, and they surround the car. It's not going to go well. A Palestinian Christian who also uh, worked in law enforcement opens the door, grabs the kid, yards him, and throws him in the jail to protect him, to keep the people away from him, right? And uh, over the next couple of days, figures out how to get him back into Israeli-controlled area. And so he goes home. I mean, it was a complete fluke. It was an accident. Everybody knew it was an accident, but it was this really devastating thing, even more complicated by the fact that He's Israeli, and this young kid was Palestinian. And so it's, it's this really complicated thing. Anyways, so the, this Israeli uh, young man gets home, and he's just tore up about what he did. And he can't get over it, and he keeps telling his parents, he's like, I've got to go meet with this kid's family. And his parents are like, you're crazy. That is a terrible idea. And he can't let it go, can't let it go, can't let it go. So... Without the approval of his parents, he reaches out to this uh, Palestinian police officer that um, pulled him out of the car. And he says, hey, um, can you get me in contact with the family? And so they, they arrange a meeting. And the way that the meeting is set up is the grandfather of this kid that was killed and the father of this kid that was killed and this young Israeli man um, sit at a table in a room and at, at one end of the table is the grandfather other end of the table is this young man and in the middle is the dad and the dad is so overcome with emotion he has to keep getting up and walking out rightly so um, he's sitting in the room with the man who just killed his son and so they're overwhelmed with all of the emotion of this and um, as they begin the meal the grandfather has a loaf of bread sitting on his plate and he stands up and he takes the loaf of bread and he breaks it. And he takes one half of the loaf and he walks over to this young Israeli man and he gives it to him. And he says this, you've left a hole in our family that now you have to fill. From this day forward, you will be part of our family and we will never speak of this again. That's sulha. That's what Jesus is doing with tax collectors and sinners. 
And at one level, we should be like, yeah, that's amazing. Way to go, Jesus. Way to, way to make them feel valuable. Way to, way to help them. But, but the problem is when, when sinners get involved in the Jesus community, they bring a certain amount of sludge with them. So glad we don't have any sludge that we bring. But they, it, it messes things up. We have a way that we do things. And when the sinners show up, they do things different. And they think different. And they talk different. And they care about different things. And so the Pharisees and the scribes are like, can you believe that he's making peace with these people? Can you, can you believe that? Let's keep reading. So he told them this parable. Now, you say there's three parables. Nope. The Bible says it's one parable. There's three movements, but it's one parable, which means we're driving at the same point in all of this. And that's important because we can get lost in the details in this and miss what really is going on here. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that has lost it until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. By the way, when he asks that question, everyone that was a shepherd in that context would have gone, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave 99 sheep to go after one. In the retail world, that's called known loss. You expect to have a certain amount of loss. Now, that doesn't mean if he doesn't have the opportunity, he won't go after it. But as a rule, you don't abandon 99 sheep. And, and the problem here is that for... It's, it's almost like Jesus is kind of buttering their bread a little bit. I mean, which one of you guys wouldn't do it this way? None of us. Um, and I've heard people who were raised in the church that kind of flew right their whole life. They didn't really do anything. That had a real problem with this. Like, why does God love the one that messed up so bad? What about us that did it right? It's almost like we need to go find a testimony so that we can understand the love of God. And we can go there if we're not looking at this from a right perspective. Remember, all three of these movements have one point. It's one parable. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. And by the way, when you have a party, what do you do? You kill a sheep and cook it for your friends. <laughs> the point isn't the sheep. The point is that we have a God who loves us like that shepherd. And then he goes on. He says, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Why does God love them so much? Because that's the kind of God he is. He longs for peace. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? N none of us. And, and when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I've found the coin that I'd lost. So she's going to throw a party over a dime. How much is she going to spend on that party? You're going to spend a hundred bucks to celebrate a dime? Yeah, because that's the kind of God we serve. That's who God is. 
We serve a God who cares about the very small things in this world. The things that nobody else values, God values. The things that the people that we look at and go, oh, they, those people. God loves them. He throws a party for them. He spends money more than he should for them. Because that's who God is. And then he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. By the way, I'm sure you guys have all heard sermons on this. This, this is essentially um, this young boy coming to his dad saying, you're dead to me. In order for the dad to actually do what he does, he actually has to sell all of his property. Otherwise, he doesn't have the cash to divide it up. But this gets a little bit tricky because we're in an honor-shame culture. What family is going to buy it from him knowing the context of why he's doing it? So in order to make this worth anything, he's got to sell his stuff for pennies on the dollar. And, and he's, he just had his younger son say, Dad, you're dead to me. And he, and he does it anyway. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. Now, by the way, in the Greek here, it says a far off land. And um, if you come with me to Israel, we'll pull this apart further. But that's not as far. We, we often think about it, it's like he went to some distant country. Some translations will say distant country. It's not a distant country. He went to the Decapolis. Why didn't they just say Decapolis? Because the Decapolis was so decrepit. It was so corrupt in the Jewish mind that to even say the word Decapolis made your mouth unclean for seven days. It was vile. And that's where he went. And we actually teach this lesson in Capernaum, which is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And you can look across the lake and see Susita, which is the northernmost city of the Decapolis. By the way, you know what the number one export of Susita is? Pigs. That's going to matter in the story. You, you, you know what else? The 10th Roman Legion was stationed in Susita. You know what their standard was? A boar. So the, the younger son leaves and goes literally to the worst possible place from his dad's perspective. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. <laughs> King James says he squandered his sustenance on riotous living. When I was in fifth grade, I turned... 11, and I had gotten birthday money uh, for, uh, from some relative or something. And so the day of my birthday, I was going to come home from school with a couple of my friends and have a birthday party. And on the way home, we went to this candy store called Piccadilly Square. And we went in, and I blew all of my birthday money on candy. And we got home and jaws full of candy. All of us, jaws full of candy. It was the greatest day of my 11-year-old life. <laughs> and uh, walked through the door and my dad says, Aaron, where have you been? <laughs> I said, Dad, we squandered our sustenance on riotous living. <laughs> True story. Yeah. 
blew the whole shooting match, didn't have a dime left for momentary pleasure. Let's keep reading. And when he'd spent everything, and we don't know how much that is, but apparently it was enough for him, to, it took him a minute to, to spend it all. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. By the way, the idea of this parable isn't that the father can imagine his son in a distant land. The idea of this is that he walks outside of his door every day and looks across the lake and knows exactly where his son is and knows exactly what's going on, which I think makes it worse. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Okay, side note. Um, the pods that we're talking about here are pods of the carob tree, the locust tree. Um, for the record, I don't believe for one minute that John the Baptist ate bugs. I think he ate the pods off the locust tree. Um, he was in Essie and he couldn't touch anything dead. Uh, Prove it. Come with me to Israel. Um, and when we, there's a particular place that we hike where sometimes we can find the male carob trees, the locust tree, and um, we actually can eat, they make chocolate substitute out of it. And you can eat the beans. The beans on the pods are so uniform that they actually use them as a form of weight measuring. They're called a carrot. That's where that comes from. Um, and so uh, what, he, what they do with this stuff is they um, grind it all up and, and they, once they take the beans, the, the beans themselves out, they grind up the pods and they feed them to pigs as fatteners. So the, the kid doesn't even want to eat the beans. It's the husks which are nasty. But he's so hungry. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, that's a weird statement. Wait. When he came to himself. I, I, would offer, I would offer this as commentary. Life deals us a lot of really interesting cards. And we don't always get to pick the cards that were dealt. Tragedy, trauma, um, confusion. Uh, all kinds of things. And here's the thing that we often do with those situations. Is that we point at them and blame them for why I am the way I am. But I think what Jesus is saying here is this. Until we come to ourselves, we are powerless to change it. It doesn't minimize the trauma. But it empowers me to be able to not be controlled by it. See, the, the thing about moving the broken pieces of our life to wholeness is that I can keep pointing at the brokenness and talk about how broken it is. But until I come to myself, I can't do anything about it. Now, what, here's, 
there's so much I want to unpack in this that I just don't have time for. Please hear me say this. I'm not saying it's an act of your will to make yourself whole. What I'm saying is I got to stop blaming my problems for why I live the way I live. I make the decision to submit my life to the Lordship of Christ so that he can do the work in me or I don't. That is 100% within my personal authority. I have individual autonomy, free moral agency, choice. To be able to decide what needs to be done about the brokenness in my life. But here's what I can tell you. As long as we blame the circumstances, well, if there wasn't a famine, well, if I hadn't ran out of money, if all my friends hadn't used me, those guys, they're the reason I'm where I am. No, I have to come to myself. Until I'm willing to go there and stop blaming the things around me I'm powerless to do anything about it and here's the thing if you were if you were subjected to trauma and I know some of your stories I don't know everybody's story but I know some of your stories in this room like your trauma was capital T big ugly nasty hairy yucky trauma it was horrible It's not your fault you went through it. But until I come to myself, I'm powerless to change it. And the problem with that is that the trauma keeps controlling me. I give it power by refusing to take ownership. Listen. Jesus wants to make peace with you. But until we come to ourselves, we can never receive it. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I'll arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So his plan isn't to try to go be restored to his dad. He feels like that's off the table. But he can go get a job at his dad's place. He's like, I'm a good worker. They have food at least. I won't be eating pig slop. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And this is the point where you should go, no way. Because by far the most dramatic part of this story is that the dad ran. And I know that we're like, yeah, because like in the movies it would be all slow motion and chariots of fire. And dun, 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 dun. No, 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 no. Old men never run. It's shameful. It's shameful in their culture. My teacher asked a Bedouin, how shameful is it for a man to run? And here's what the Bedouin said. He said, it would be like your grandmother walking into a crowded room topless. That's how shameful it is for an old man to run. If I had been the dad, I would have been like, oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, bringing his broke hind parts back here now. Yep, 
wasted everything that I built, made his older brother pay for it. We're sitting here trying to put things back together because of what he did. And now he blew all his money because he's foolish and he wants to come home and expect me to do anything for him. Really? Mm -hmm. We'll see how this goes. This is the kind of father that spends $100 to celebrate a dime. This is the kind of father that kills a sheep to celebrate a sheep. This is the kind of father that will humiliate himself again and again and again because he loves his son so much. He doesn't care what's broke. We get so worked up with, well, but you've really blown it. You have that one thing about you. Whatever our one thing is, it's different for different people. But when we find somebody that steps on that particular hot button for us, I don't know what to do with that. Be like the Father. And the son, <clears throat> father, I don't know if he took a posture. I, I don't know what he did. I don't know what he did. I wasn't there. Um, and it's a story. Uh, this isn't actually history. It's a parable. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's as far as the father let him get. This is the equivalent of Jesus looking at the sinners and the tax collectors when they say, I'm not worthy to follow you. And he goes, bull snot. Part of the issue that we face in our understanding of the biblical narrative is that we as Westerners have a very egocentric view of the world. And what that means is we start the universe with our being and then everything emanates out from that. So when we approach the Bible, we read it as if our sin drives the story. Your sin doesn't drive the story of the scriptures. God's love does. And that matters. That's not, well, you're playing semantics. No, actually, that's profoundly different. Because when we start talking about, am am I worthy? Am I worthy of it? Not in the sense that I'm perfect, but Jesus says I am. That's why he did it. And to say, well, I'm wretched, I'm horrible, I'm awful, I'm evil, I'm blah, blah, blah. To say that I'm those things demeans Jesus on the cross. It demeans him. Now, on the flip side of that, you can't be like, and so I'm awesome. No, because I am broken, right? There's a difference between approaching the throne of grace with confidence and approaching it with arrogance. They're not the same thing. And I think so many of us either get into this place where we can't get over the, I'm wretched, I'm bad, I'm horrible, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy to be your son, I'm not worthy to be your son. The father won't let you get past that point. Stop talking, because it's not true. And to prove it, we're going to have a party. Or we fall into the trap of the older brother. Let's keep reading. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, dutifully working, doing the right thing. But with all the wrong heart. (laughs) 
And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brothers come. Like, think about the tone in the servant's voice. The servant is going to reflect the heart of the father because it's who he's supposed, that's what he's, he doesn't know any better. He doesn't know that the older son's going to be mad about it. Like, dude, that's what he's going to, bruh. The, your younger brother's home. Isn't it great? Your brother's come home and your father's killed the fat calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. I did everything right. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, I mean, he's not without a point. But the problem is, he has a heart for himself, not the heart of the Father. And I would offer maybe even more insidious because he looks like the Father, but he's actually nothing like the Father. And this is the problem with being a Christian for a long time, that the longer we walk with Jesus, the harder it is to remember what it feels like to be lost. And so we have a tendency to start acting as if we have some special access. But when this son of yours, he doesn't call him his brother, he's no brother of mine, this son of yours came who has devoured your property and with prostitutes. Now, by the way, does the older son know that? Educated speculation, but it's still speculation. Here's what he did. You killed the fat calf for him, and he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that's mine is yours. Doing this for him doesn't diminish any blessing of yours. So why do you care? But it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the older son says, like this is literally the worst place to end the story. But what it forces us to do is to decide which of these characters do we connect to most and why. So I have some dear friends. My wife and I have some dear friends um, that are they came to the Lord uh, in their 30s. So they're first generation Christians, both of them pretty rough uh, upbringings, lots of divorce and broken home and, and different things. Um, and they have, uh, over the last almost 20 years that I've known them, really dug in and um, grown and tried to raise their kids better. Um, than they were raised. And, and I've been really, really proud of them. They've taken it really, really seriously. There came a situation where um, they were uh, wrongly accused. And to protect the innocent and the guilty, the details of that are irrelevant, but trust me, it was wrong. Not only was the accusation wrong, but the way in which it was done was wrong, which is almost more egregious. That's a really big word. It's almost more badder. Um, and, and so... What happened was we had an occasion where we were actually talking about this parable. And uh, the wife of this couple started to sob. 
And she said, you know, as I'm reading this, I, I, I feel like the younger brother who's at the party, but the older brother is standing there pointing the finger at me saying, you don't belong here. If we're ever going to move our brokenness to wholeness, here's what you need to know. You belong at the party. The Father's so happy to see you. And I know that there's so much brokenness and damage and questions and issues and one, but just come home. Just come home. You, you belong at the party. And if you've had horrible things done to you, you belong at the party. I don't know how to sort it all out, but I know the Father does, and he's so glad you're here. And if you find yourself in a non-conforming position in life, you belong at the party. And the Father's so glad that you're here. And I don't know how to sort it all out. And I don't know what it all means. But what I know is he does. And together we can figure it out. But we've got to do it together. And here's the thing about brokenness and trauma and hurt and confusion and all that stuff. It doesn't get fixed the moment I say yes. It takes time. It takes time. Sanctification is a lifelong journey. And so what we have to do is to create space, older brothers and sisters. We've got to create space for the younger brother to feel safe at home. So that Jesus can get a hold of their heart. If we don't do that, then we're no better than the Pharisees and the, ta the, than the scribes and the Pharisees. We're missing what Jesus is up to. And I know it comes with questions. Well, you're going to let them come in and start preaching their agenda. No, I'm not. I won't let you do it, and I won't let them do it. This is about the kingdom. That's the agenda. Well, what about the... Here's what I know about it. Is that if we're ever going to figure out how to do this in a way that honors the Lord, we're going to figure it out together. Not pointing fingers and separating and dividing. That's not how this works. It's not the heart of the father. That's not the heart of the shepherd of a hundred sheep. And that's not the heart of the woman with ten coins. It's not the heart. You. Right where you're at. Right in this moment. Right in this space. You belong at the party. And the father's so glad you're here. It doesn't mean we then get to go, well, sweet, and I get to go back to the Decapolis. No, I'm home now. Now I'm living at home, and that's different. Doesn't mean I don't have baggage and issues and questions and stuff to work out. Oh, that's normal. That's fine. That's good. But I don't get to act a fool and still be a son. But come home. There's no reason. But I'm so broken. I've heard, I've heard like... And again, I've said this before, but I'm going to keep saying it because we need to keep saying it. I've heard so many people say to me, if I walk through the doors of the church, it would fall down. Uh, if that happens, we will rebuild. Come home. Come home. The Father wants you home. And anybody... Who has the heart of the Father? Wants you home. And anybody who doesn't want you home doesn't have the heart of our Father. And that means they're in sin. So if you're like, but I don't know if I want those people, I love that honesty. I love the honesty. God's ready to welcome you home too. See, the thing about it is, the older son's no more righteous than the younger son. 
Because neither one of them's heart is closer to the Father. He did all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. That's why Jesus can say in Matthew 7, not everyone who calls unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles? And I will say to you on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. You do all kinds of great things, but did you know him? Did you know his voice? I have some implications for us this morning. And so while we're doing that, uh, our communion team is going to go back and grab the elements. If you're new with us this week, we take communion together every week. And uh, we have an open table. Um, What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us as his, uh, with him as your Lord and Savior is invited to partake in it. But we want you to hold those elements till the end and we'll take them all together. While they're passing that out, uh, I want to work through four implications. Implication number one. Until we come to ourselves, we will be powerless to change. Jesus does his transforming work in us when we stop making excuses to stay away and choose to come home. And again... That means you and I have to create a home for them to come home to. They have to be able to come in and be a part of the family long enough for Jesus to transform their heart, and that takes time. What that means is we're going to have a lot of really broken people here. And, And I would offer, you know, people are, so many people are like, the church is full of hypocrites. That's right where they should be. Um, that's, right, that's right where we should be. Because God loves broken people. And he loves to watch us lay our lives down, surrender our hearts to Jesus so that he can do the work of transformation in us. Implication number two. When we finally come home, we realize that we've always belonged at the party. We've always belonged at the party. Implication number three. No matter what the people uh, who are already at the party say about us, the Father welcomes us to the party. No matter what the people who are already at the party say about us, The Father welcomes us to the party. Which means those of us that have been at the party for a minute have got to be really, really careful about how we view people that come in that are different than us. Never forget what it feels like to be lost. Implication number four. God wants his church to be a place where broken people can find a safe place to heal and grow and become who God has intended them to be. Is there anybody in here that doesn't need the church to be that space? Like, we're all broken. All of us are broken. All of us are. Some of us are better at hiding it than other people. But we're all broken. And so our invitation isn't to pretend like we have it all together. In fact, I would say spiritual maturity isn't leading me to the place where I look like I'm put together. Spiritual maturity is leading me to a place of real authenticity. And I think the more, the evidence that somebody spends real time with God isn't what they know about the Bible. It's how far we realize the distances between his holiness and our holiness right like spending time with God the more that I'm in his presence the more that I realize I still have work to do man and and that makes his love mean even more makes his love mean even more 
So as we get our hearts ready for communion this morning, I, I would just ask you this question. Um, first of all, if you're in the room and you're like, I, man, it's appealing to come home, but I'm just, I'm just so messed up. What's stopping you? What's that space in your heart that's keeping you from just coming home? Because I'll tell you this, that's Satan's work in your life. Don't let him win. <clears throat> Maybe we connect with the older brother a little bit more. We're like, I have a hard time loving broken people. Um, that, in the life of a Jesus follower, is its own profound brokenness. And maybe today we take a moment to lay that at the foot of the cross. Let's get our hearts ready to take communion together. Just spend a minute talking with him about whatever he lays on your heart with that. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, thank you for your incredible grace that you would go to no short extreme to make sure that we know that you love us more than we could ever imagine. Lord, call us deeper into that love. Give us the courage to look in the mirror and be honest about our own brokenness so that we can give it to you and allow you to make it whole. In Jesus' name, amen.